Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, April 24th, and we are talking about some of the fastest growing big tech stocks. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Brian Froldy. Not just okay, Brian Froldy, Brian Froldy. Brian, how's it going? Did I just get a raise? Did I get an upgrade? <laughs> this is amazing. And Dylan, I have to start the show off by telling you something really quick. Jason Moser changed my life forever yesterday when he recommended putting oregano on top of your pizza. I don't know if you've ever tried this. I tried it today. I'm sold for life. It's oregano on my pizza from here on out. <laughs> that doesn't shock me. I mean, Jason Moser is the biggest McCormick homer I know. He he pounds for that stock and, and absolutely loves the company. He pounds the table. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that he's coming up with fun ways to, to make food better uh, especially if it's remotely seasoning related. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll, there you uh, go. There, there, there's your tip for the day. I think we're done here. We'll we'll actually have some <laughs> other food related tips on the on the back half of the show. Uh, we teased it on Twitter, but we'll be talking a little bit about uh, smoking meats, something that Austin Morgan and I are both very fond of. But before we do that, Brian, we're going to talk about some stocks, uh, and specifically, we're talking. This is an idea that that you sent my way. We're talking about the three fastest growing big tech stocks out there. Uh, and before we get into the companies we're going to talk about, why don't, we, why don't we break down exactly how we're going to define that, just so we're clear. Yeah. So, we use screens sometimes to look for, for companies that meet criteria that we are uh, interested in. Uh, one of the things that I like to look at is sales growth. Uh, to me, fast sales growth is an indicator that the company is doing something uh, right. And I like to see companies that are growing their top line very quickly. Uh, so in this case, we're going to be talking at uh, look at ten, uh, tech companies that have already reached a market valuation of at least $10 billion. So those are large businesses. And we simply are talking about three companies that are absolutely have produced enormous sales growth uh, over the past five years. Huge numbers. So yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, we could go from third to first and really build up the drama, but you know we're just going to go with number one right off the bat uh, with a five-year sales kegger of ninety-five percent. Brian, our first company is Uber. That is outrageous. That is nearly doubling your revenue every year for five years. Jaw-dropping. Uh, just just simply uh, jaw-dropping growth. Uh, and for a sense of scale here, uh, Uber is about a $49 uh, billion business. I'm sure our listeners are super familiar with it, but just in case you don't know, uh, it's the leading rideshare platform uh, in the world. It has 5 million drivers uh, on, on its platform. Uh, last year, it did $7 billion trips. Uh, that was up 32%. Uh, so, as you can see, growth is starting to slow pretty substantially. Uh, but the company actually has five different operating segments. Uh, rides, which is the lion's share of revenue, 76% of revenue. 
And that's what you and I take whenever we use our app to call an Uber. Uh, They also have Eats, which is their food delivery uh, service, which is still growing very quickly. Uh, Eats is 22%. Uh, of, of revenue. So this is still a rides and eats company, uh, pretty much. Uh, they also have freight, which is, you know, the delivery of goods, the last mile delivery of goods. Uh, another one that holds lots of potential, but it's just 1% of sales. And then two other basically negligible uh, ones for them now would be their other bets market. I love the, the stealing one out of uh, Google's playbook, right? Calling it other bets. And that's what they consider to be scooters, uh, e-bikes, other mobility uh, products. And then finally is their autonomous vehicle um, pilot program. They've been trying to get autonomous vehicles to go mainstream for years, and that is obviously not a big financial contributor now. Uh, but that's a quick gist on Uber. I like that breakdown there, Brian, because I, I think that we know it so well as the ride-hailing company, but the reality is if this business is going to survive and thrive, it's probably going to look quite different in five or 10 years than it does right now. And you're getting that hint with the investments in freight, the investments in the other bets, you know, other mobility concepts that might prove more profitable than ride-hailing. And of course, the autonomous driving, which is such a large part of the long-term thesis for this company. Yeah. Autonomous is a massive opportunity as well as a huge threat uh, the, the first company that, that the first company that really gets to level four or level five and, and deploys a autonomous taxi network uh, globally, that's going to be an unbelievable competitive advantage. So no surprise to see that Uber sees that threat and has invested heavily to make sure that it is a player in the space. For the most part, when you're looking at the numbers for Uber, uh, especially over the last five years, you're seeing that hockey stick growth (laughs) that everyone really likes to see. And of course, as the denominator gets larger and larger, coming by that growth gets harder and harder. But the business is still putting up some pretty interesting numbers. Um, over $65 billion in gross bookings last year. Uh, we can't anchor too heavily to that number because that's basically the economic value that they're facilitating, not what they're actually pulling in. On that, they did about $14 billion in revenue, uh, up 26%, which might sound like a steep deceleration from that CAGR that we were talking about before. But like I said, I mean, the bigger that denominator gets, the, the harder the growth is to come by. Yeah. And, and this is common. We see with, you see hyper growth. Uh, sadly, Uber was basically all, all that hyper growth went into private investors' uh, pockets as opposed to public investors. That's just a, a sad fact about when this company chooses to go uh, public. So, as you're, you pointed out, $14 billion in revenue up 26%. Uh, not exactly chump change, but not as fast as you might expect for somebody that's changing the world like Uber is, especially compared to its five year revenue CAGR. Uh, but the more important number to me there is its expenses. Uh, this is a company that produced uh, $22.2 billion of expenses uh, last year. So you subtract those numbers, and you're looking at an $8.6 billion net loss. So quite a sizable number. Yeah, and, and you hinted at it before, but you know, so much of the growth, so much of the market share capture for this company happened uh, while it was still a venture-backed company, and it was not a public company. And so, for a good chunk of the the time that it has been public, you know, over the last just over a year or just under a year or so, um, it's been kind of a disappointing stock. Uh, I think shares debuted somewhere in the 40s. They're currently trading in the high 20s, and a lot of folks have kind of struggled to know what to do with Uber. Because on the one hand, it is this market-leading company. Uh, By basically every metric and every market, they are the leader when it comes to ride-hailing and most mobility services. However, 
there's this long-term question mark with autonomy with them, specifically because they're going up against some pretty deep-pocketed competitors who are also investing really heavily in autonomous driving. Yeah, I see, I see their current business model as basically a bridge between what we have today and autonomous driving. Uh, so that's a big question mark for this, for this company. On the flip side, I really like the optionality of this business. I love that they start out as rides and have added in uh, freight and eats and other bets uh, on top of this. That's something that uh, uh, grabs my attention as an investor. And the other thing that's worth pointing out here is uh, Uber is actually taking some pretty substantial positions in other uh, leading uh, delivery platforms, ride-hailing platforms in countries where it's not the number one or number two position. Uh, those investments actually total $11.8 billion, uh, which is a very sizable number. Again, this is a company that's currently worth about $50 billion. Uh, so 20% of its market value is in its ownership positions in other companies, such as um, uh, Yandex, uh, DD, uh, Grab. DD is the big one. Uh, that's the chi- China's lead uh, ride-hailing uh, company. Uh, the, the other thing to note here is um, the company has a pretty decent cash position, uh, $11.3 billion in cash in its books uh, versus debt of $5.7 billion. Those are pretty good numbers in their own right. But again, when you're comparing that to a net loss of $8 billion, uh, that, prob- that number is going to sink like a stone pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and I think the hard thing is when you look at the businesses that they're in right now, you know, they do their breakouts for adjusted EBITDA and they have those five different segments. The only one that is posting positive adjusted EBITDA right now is the ride segment. And, you know, it is the largest portion of their business. So that's a good thing. But um, it's not a profitable business right now. And we're talking about adjusted EBITDA. We're not even really getting into, you know, the core gap financials. So the ride hailing business where most of the money's coming from is not profitable. A lot of the other spaces where they're making investments, eats, freights, and then the other bets and autonomous stuff as well, not profitable at the moment. And I know longer term, the company is targeting, I think, an adjusted EBITDA margin of 25%. Um, I'm not exactly sure how they're going to get there because so much of what they're doing right now doesn't seem to track to that. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, they, they've made some pretty laudy uh, promises out there about getting to uh, profitability, or at least on the, an adjusted basis, uh, shall we say, but uh, I'm not completely sold uh, on, on their potential to do so. But no matter what, it's going to be a fascinating company to follow. <laughs> and the growth story is hard to argue with. That 95% number is just outrageous. Um, all right, our second fastest mega growth tech giant. This is one that a lot of fools are going to know. Shopify, Brian. Yeah. Shopify, just a unbelievable home run beyond home run uh, investment. And unlike Uber, this is a company that has hugely benefited public uh, investors. So Shopify came public in 2014 uh, at a market valuation of $1 billion. Uh, you fast forward to today, $75 billion. So public investors have enjoyed huge uh, returns from, uh, from, from this company. Uh, for those that don't know it, Shopify... Uh, is focused on creating tools that will enable uh, e-commerce to happen, uh, specifically with a focus on small and medium-sized businesses. So you can use Shopify's platform uh, to create a digital storefront, uh, accept payments, uh, and they're actually branching out into a number of other businesses. But um, getting to our, the theme of our show, uh, Shopify revenue growth over the last five years, 72% compound annual growth rate, simply stunning. 
And uh, you threw out that market cap number. It is worth mentioning that if we had done this show at a different point uh, this month or you know possibly in March, the number would have been totally different. Um, I, I think it could have been down in the 40s. And this stock has been, it's been on an absolute tear over the last five years, but it's been on an absolute tear over the last three weeks too. Um, I think we should probably give a quick recap because I'm sure there are some people who uh, maybe are shareholders or have been watching this company and are wondering uh, what the heck is going on. And so, you know, if you go back to early April, they announced that they were going to be suspending some of their financial guidance. And really, I mean, this was due to the uncertainty around COVID 19. Um, and as is often the case, the market did not like that news. And and I think Shopify is a case in point for why you shouldn't over-index to these types of announcements, especially when there's something that is system-wide going on. Uh, because two weeks later, the company's chief technology officer, Jean-Michael Lemieux, tweeted, as we help thousands of businesses to move online, our platform is now handling Black Friday level traffic every day. It won't be long before traffic has doubled or more. And I think that that right there basically put any concerns to rest, Brian. Yeah, that's just a <laughs> stunning statistic to think about. And we've heard it from several companies. Uh, Target the other day came out and said that we're seeing essentially Cyber Monday traffic on our site uh, every single day. Uh, and uh, for a sense, so Shopify stock has basically doubled uh, over the last month. Year to date, this company is up 64%. Not bad, given that we're in the middle of a global shutdown uh, of, the, of, of economies. Uh, and Shopify is still posting pretty good growth. Its, it's growth rate has slowed down, uh, but um, in, the, in, in 2019, Revenue growth came in at 47%, a very respectable number given given the, the scale that this company uh, is operating at. Its gross margins are holding up pretty good, typically in the mid 40% range. And, and as you pointed out, um, given their given their guidance, Shopify has a history of basically plowing every single dollar that they can into back into the operations to create new tools, uh, new product. One that's, that I'm particularly excited about is the Shopify uh, fulfillment network, which is kind of like an Amazon Prime-like feature, where Shopify kind of does the um, warehousing of products for their for their merchants and allows to, and handles kind of the fulfillment uh, aspect of it. They actually acquired a company called Six River Systems uh, last year that provides them with some warehousing technology to make that uh, a bit easier. Uh, so Shopify, in my opinion, is just doing everything right right now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to argue with the results, and you know it is awesome that we were able to participate in the growth story as uh, as retail investors. You know, this was this was a sleepy e-commerce company only a couple of years ago, and it has just absolutely exploded. Um, I think what we're seeing in terms of website traffic is is kind of a testament to the fact that. Uh, this business not only has tailwinds going for it with you know the rise of e-commerce, with more and more businesses going online, but in fact, given everything that we're dealing with, it's probably a business that's built to thrive as we're dealing with this pandemic. Another thing I want to throw out there is Shopify is a very conservative company on the on the, on the fiscal front. Uh, they have done several common stock offerings over the years to take advantage of their soaring stock price. So right now, uh, even though they are operating at a loss, uh, it is a, a pretty small loss, and they have two point four billion in cash. Zero debt. That gives them plenty of financial flexibility to continue doing what they're doing and plow everything they can into operations. 
We love to see that. If you don't owe anybody any money, you can be pretty nimble and you can be pretty opportunistic. Um, Brian, you talked about that growth rate before, and we have seen that tick down over the last couple of years. I think it was at one point in the 70s, and then one point in the 60s and the 50s, and we're kind of in the, the high 40s now. Um, this is the natural progression that you'd expect. Uh, I think given the valuation for this business, if there are any serious decelerations in the growth rate, eh, the stock's going to get punished. Yeah. $1.6 billion in revenue. Current market cap, $76 billion. That is a generous <laughs> price-to-sales ratio, uh, shall we say. So, yeah. Uh, Wall Street is basically saying Shopify is, not, is going to own this market. Uh, so far, it does. Uh, but, yeah, there is, there is a lot of good, good things priced into Shopify's valuation right now. And of course, they are currently losing money when you go down to the bottom line, uh, and they are also losing money when it comes to operating income, uh, and that's because they are making some pretty big investments in R&D, and their SG&A is pretty high. Not all that rare for a high-growth business that is looking to scale as quickly as possible. Yes. Um, I will say that I do own this, and I have no plans to sell, but the valuation does give me some, some, some pause at moments. Yeah, yeah, I'm 100% with you. And, and we'll recap at the end kind of our, our takes on these three stocks. But um, it, it is, a, is a tough one to look at uh, in terms of valuation and dive right in. I can understand how people might have some reservations about that. Um, our last company, another high flyer, another one that fools are probably pretty familiar with, and that's the Trade Desk, another pretty gaudy compound annual growth rate over the last five years, Brian. Yeah, the trade desk. Uh, I was actually a bit surprised to see this qualify as above a, a large cap status, but market cap of the trade desk right now is twelve billion dollars, uh, which is pretty pretty sizable. And uh, you know, sticking with our theme, over the last five years, we've seen the trade desk grow its top line seventy two percent, a compound annual growth rate of seventy two percent. That is just awesome. Yeah, it is. And, you know, a lot of fools own the stock. So, you know, kudos to them for coming aboard and, and picking a, a great investment. Um, I, I have seen some people, uh, both, you know, in our emails and, and on Twitter asking this question, you know, the trade desk seems like almost like a company like Shopify that is really well built to handle what we're dealing with in terms of the global pandemic and possibly even thrive. You know, they look at the the likes of Netflix doing very well right now and say, well, the trade desk is also a streaming video play. How come Netflix is doing so well and the trade desk is still kind of sold off a little bit? Um, they have two fundamentally different business models. You know, when, when you see a company like Netflix, that is a membership model. And people are paying; they're paying every month, um, and so there aren't a lot of disruptions there, unless there's a prolonged period where people are deciding to reduce their spending and then making those hard choices about where they're going to cut. But company like Trade Desk, they are in the ad buying process, and the difference is when we're seeing consumer spending go down, we're also seeing ad budgets get cut. And you can really notice this. It's not as pronounced as it used to be. But if you look at a company like Hulu uh, and a platform like Hulu, you can see the ad spots and whether or not they're getting filled on the platform. And I remember a couple of weeks ago, basically being able to watch shows straight through, you know, t- 22 minutes in and out um, because there weren't ads being bought and sold. And it seems like that's been remedied a little bit. But because the trade desk is uh, essentially an ad middleman, they create the buy side platform for advertisers, they are going to be hit whenever ad dollars start to shrink. 
Yeah, that's a good point. We should probably t- just drill down a little bit on what the Trade Desk does to, to, to your point. So they provide a self-service uh, cloud-based platform uh, for ad agencies and brands that helps them to uh, pick through massive amounts of data and and optimize their ad placement. So this is called programmatic uh, ad buying. This is a very small market when compared to the overall size uh, of the global ad market, uh, but it's the fastest growing segment uh, of the ad market. So I'm particularly interested to see how this company does over the next couple of quarters, because to your point, I think there's, there's no doubt we're gonna see a massive contraction in the number of companies that are advertising and spending However, what I'm curious to know is, does that mean it's going to accelerate the shift of those dollars to programmatic? Um, because we've seen that very thing happen uh, with, with other segments of the market. When, when there's periods of mass disruption, technology, technological uh, innovation and, and switching uh, accelerates uh, during periods like this. Uh, so I'm going to keep an, uh, uh, I'm definitely going to pick through everything the trade desk says with a fine tooth comb and be really interested to see what they have to say. Yeah, and and actually, that's a great point, Brian, because with ad buyers, these are things where there's some mutual exclusivity to where money goes. You know, um, if you have a budget of, we'll say, a million dollars, and you can spend some of that with mass media, some of that with uh, online advertising, digital media, um, unless your budget increases, every dollar you put in one place is going to be at the expense of another place. And what we've seen over the last five, 10 years is marketers increasingly realizing that places like Google and Facebook are great places to spend money in terms of return on investment for their marketing dollars. We're starting to see digital marketing go towards streaming video. And I think if the trade desk can show that those are ad dollars that are well spent, we will very quickly see a lot of that money shift from conventional media, you know, your average commercial during a cable news slot, to um, you know the likes of Hulu or some of the other ad-supported video players out there. Because at the end of the day, marketers are going to respond to wherever they are getting the best return on their investment. Yeah, and right now there's more pressure on them than ever before to make the most of of their ad spending dollars. And to, to give you guys a sense of scale. Uh, here. Uh, last year, uh, mark, uh, marketers spent about just over $3 billion on the Trade Desk platform. Uh, for comparison, the global ad digital ad marketing is $725 billion. So even if that number falls by, geez, 50%, um, if even just a tiny fraction of that gets shifted over to programmatic ad buying, it is in the entire realm of possibility that the Trade Desk could grow. Uh, this year, which would just be crazy, uh, but that, that's that's a huge advantage of having a technology that is such a small part small, uh, small part of the overall spending market. Yeah, and they're still in that lovely spot where they're not a massive, massive company. You know, they just make it over that ten billion dollar hurdle that we had set for this show. I think they're just about an eleven billion dollar company right now. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a company of a certain size, but the reality is, you know, everything that they're able to take away from conventional media advertising uh, is going to be very accretive to their total addressable market, and certainly their financials. Uh, and speaking of Brian, why don't we talk a little bit about what the story was for them in 2019? Yeah. So basically, pick a number. It looked good. Uh, <laughs> revenue was up 39 percent um, to 661 million. Uh, the company produced net income. Yes, 
net income of 108 million. 108 million of, of net income on 661 million. That's a very attractive uh, profile, uh, profit margin uh, already, and the company is still scaling. Uh, the numbers looked even better uh, when you look at a non-gap uh, basis. Um, so very, very strong growth on the top and bottom lines. This company also has a bulletproof balance sheet, $250 million in cash, uh, no debt. So completely understandable uh, while this company has gotten so much attention uh, from people that like growth. Yeah, uh, we, we touched on some of the opportunities ahead of them and, and the ability to just take a little bit of that spend that's going elsewhere right now and bring it over to the uh, digital ad market, specifically connected TV. Um, anything else on opportunities before we hit a listener question on the trade desk, Brian? Yeah, I mean, the, the CEO of this company, again, points out that $725 billion is the global ad market today. Uh, while that's definitely going to take a hit in 2020, uh, the trend is still upward when it comes to advertising. And he believes that the global ad market for digital sales uh, will exceed a trillion dollars uh, sometime in the 2020s. Uh, so the Trade Desk's market share of that number is infinitely decimal small. <laughs> so... Uh because we're talking Trade Desk, I wanted to loop in a listener question that we got on Twitter recently. Uh, Ro hit me up and said, you guys bring up the Trade Desk a lot. I'd love to hear your thoughts on recent insider selling in the company, specifically the CEO, CTO, and CLO. And then he posted a screenshot of some insider sells over the past couple months. Um, before we get into the specifics of the Trade Desk and some of these transactions, uh, Brian, how do you generally think about insider buying and selling? Uh, yeah, I know some people really pay close attention to this stuff, and it makes sense, right? If, if, if people with more information than you, that know the business better than you, are selling, shouldn't you be concerned? That's a very logical uh, thing to say. Uh, I personally almost never pay attention to insider selling. Um, I know from past experiences that um, insiders sell for a huge number of reasons, uh, maybe they want diversification. Maybe they're buying a house. Maybe they're sending a kid to college. Uh, maybe 99.9% of their net worth is tied to their employer stock, and they literally see uh, other opportunities uh, for diversification. Uh, so insiders sell for so many reasons that I, I, when, when I see somebody is selling shares, um, it doesn't really concern me uh, at all. For example, we've seen that Mark Zuckerberg, I saw a headline the other day, Mark Zuckerberg sells $500 million worth of Facebook. And if that's all the information you had, you'd be like, oh my God, I got to get out of Facebook. <laughs> and then you realize 100% of that was going to charity. And that's basically 1% of his position in Facebook. So context is really important. And I don't know why CEO Jeff Green decided to sell his shares, um, but it's important to then look at, okay, if this person is selling, what is the stake in the business? And while the other executives definitely matter, um, Jeff Green is really the person I'm following with this business. Um, he's a visionary leader, someone who has a very good finger on the pulse for what's going on in this market. And he currently owns about 11% of the company, or based on that market cap I threw out there before, over a billion dollars in trade desk stock. Um, so he has sold, but I think it's pretty safe to say that his financial outcomes are directly tied to what happens to the trade desk as a company. And that's pretty good for shareholders. Yes, 
And uh, we, uh, we've also seen, it's also common for shareholders, for major shareholders to sell now uh, for tax reasons. These guys often have enormous tax bills that they have to pay, and one of the ways that they pay them is by liquidating some of their stock. So that's one of the many reasons why I don't put too much stock in following what uh, insiders do, uh, with the sole exception being, uh, let's say the trade desk stock fell 75%, and then CEO Green dumped 90% of his position. Boy, would I pay attention to that. <laughs> but in this case, minor, minor sales all along the way don't bother me at all. Yeah, and very often some of these are set on a schedule where people are trying to wind down a very large position because they own 15% of a company and they want to own a significant chunk of the company, but they also want to have some liquidity just so that they can do a lot of things you're talking about, buy homes, um, you know, possibly give charitable donations, what have you. Uh, and so I think with a, with a leader like Jeff Green clearly owning a large stake of the business, nothing to worry about there. If Jeff Green's ownership went from... 11% to 2% overnight, I would be a little concerned. Um, the other thing I think to watch with this is, you know, if, if you're seeing anything that seems a little unseemly with when management is selling shares. Um, so if there's information that is not yet public, that is very damning for a business, um, it would be, I think, highly unethical uh, and would probably lead to some investigations if management were to sell and act on that information beyond whatever they already had scheduled with some of those uh, insider sells. So anytime you see something like that too, that is another reason to be concerned. But with what I see with the trade desk, nothing to worry about. Yep, I think we're in agreement there. All right. So Brian, three mega growth businesses. Uh, what do we make of them? How how are you looking at these companies? Do you own any? And uh, if you don't own any, are any of them on your watch list? Uh, well, I'm happy to say that I own Shopify uh, and the trade desk. Uh, Shopify is the bigger portion of my portfolio, but that's because of its unstoppable uh, stock market uh, run. Uh, the Trade Desk I also own. Uh, I like the Trade Desk very much uh, for the future. Between the three, it would be the one that I would be the most interested in purchasing today uh, if I didn't own it. Own it. Uh, I'm not sold on Uber. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of risk there. I don't like the financial statements. I'm really worried about the long-term threat of autonomous, um, autonomous networks. Now, if Uber wins the race, um, it's gonna, that's going to create so much value that you could have ample opportunity to get in. Uh, but for, for me, for right now, I'm, I'm definitely staying away from Uber, and I would be far more interested in Shopify and the Trade Desk. How about you, Dylan? So, uh, I am in the same boat. You can tell that we spend a lot of time talking to each other. Uh, <laughs> um, I own Shopify and the Trade Desk. I think at this point, Shopify is about the position that I want it to be, um, mostly due to the insane share price appreciation that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, I might decide to add to it here and there, but it's kind of been built into you know the multiple buys that I like to do over time to, to build to a full position. Um, the Trade Desk is still a smaller position for me, um, likely one that I'll be adding adding to over the next couple months and quarters. Um, I think if I were to buy one today, I'd probably go with the Trade Desk simply because it's a smaller company, a little bit earlier in the growth story, um, and the valuation isn't quite as insane as Shopify's. Uh, there might be some kind of come back down to earth moment there. The struggle that I always have with Uber is I'm just not sure how they're going to make money. And, you know, I was, I was actually thinking about it the other day, and I was like, well, if I think the only way that Uber could have made it work was if there was exclusivity with their drivers. Because they did this amazing thing where they built out this network of all these people that are willing to take people places. But 
the second they did that, all of these other ride hailing companies and transportation companies were able to take advantage of it because they're contractors, they're not full-time employees. Um, and there are a lot of other problems that come along with that. But but I don't know what is uniquely Uber and what they're really going to be able to do to show any pricing power and, and really get a hold on their financials. Yep. I think we're in agreement there. Uh, it's a fascinating company. I love it as a consumer. I, yeah. I will continue to use it. Uh, but just because, uh, just because a technology is disruptive and changes things uh, doesn't mean it's a good investment. Uh, I, I, I've seen this. If, if you want, well, what do you mean? Uh, just go ahead and look at any, pull up any solar stock over the last 10 years uh, and see, I mean, solar has become unbelievably popular uh, in so many places. Boy, is it hard to make money in solar and in, in investing in solar. Yeah. And, and there are some smart people that are taking the other side of that one with Uber and saying, you know, this is a disruptive company. This is where mobility is going. Uh, I think if this is a stock that you're going to buy, you have to believe that they are going to win autonomy because, or, or certainly be really close to the leader because that's going to be something that fundamentally changes their business and their financials, probably makes it a little bit easier for them to make money long term. Um, but if they can't pull that off, and you know the likes of Google's Waymo or Tesla or Apple or you know insert any car manufacturer that's investing in that space, GM Cruise, you know um, they're they're going to have a hard time. And so I, I think that that is the thing you have to be super convinced of if you're going to buy this stock. Agreed. Um, on on a totally non-stock related note, NFL draft was last night. Brian, your Patriots traded out of the first round. How do you feel about that? Uh, the Patriots are value investors, Dylan. I don't know if you know that. And that has worked out pretty well for us over the last, oh, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, so I trust whatever they're just doing. Uh, yeah, but uh, my son uh, my son is a huge football fan, and he asked, he begged us to stay up last night so he could watch some of the drafts. So we let him watch the first hour. Looking forward to round two tonight. Did, did you watch? Uh, I did. Yeah, I was like preparing notes for the show and had had the draft up on my computer. And, you know, it was just nice to have some live sports again. It, it, it felt it felt kind of good to, to have something that reminded me that there was, uh, you know, some distractions out there and that there was something fun to watch. So I was excited. Uh, I have no idea what to make of the Jets pick Mackay Becton. Uh, I like that we're sharing up the offensive line. That sounds great to me. But uh, yeah. there's just a lot of holes to plug on that team right now <laughs> they got an offensive lineman sounds good yeah yeah um and uh and i teased this on twitter but um i wanted to chat a little bit with austin about smoking some meat because i did uh i did a little meat smoke did some chicken legs taking advantage of being home for the day yesterday did a uh, did a buffalo sauce and a sriracha lime uh, over mesquite chips and and Austin's really the person who knows smoking a little bit better than me so I want to check in with him and see uh what what he's been working on and how he's been handling stay at home uh that actually sounds pretty good what you did whatever it was <laughs> it looked good <clears throat> um, yeah it, it turned out solid I did ribs over the weekend I did three two one ribs for the first time which is three hours on the smoker two hours in a wrap and then one hour of saucing so I did hot barbecue rub, let it sit for an hour, three hours on, misting it with apple juice every hour, 45 minutes, in the wrap with butter and brown sugar, spicy barbecue sauce, good mix of sweet and spicy. Ooh. Dust it with a little hot hot barbecue at the end, 
So, so good. <laughs> it's never been a better time to cook things that take a lot of time. Oh, no, it's great. <laughs> you can do it every day if you wanted to. Uh, for any Unless folks- you have three kids that you're trying to homeschool at the same <laughs> time, I will point out. <laughs> yeah, can I you do tell not. who does and doesn't have kids in this conversation? Um, Austin, you've done a fair amount of, uh, of meat smoking. Any tips for anyone that wants to get into it? Uh, get a pellet smoker. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> Set the temperature, make sure it doesn't run out of pellets, and wait. Yeah, we're on different rigs. I have uh, I, <laughs> I have like a coil set up with lava rocks, and uh, I don't have any control over the temperature. So yeah. there are times where to expedite things, I need to pull it out after a couple hours and finish it in the oven. But, you know, I inherited it, so I didn't really have to, like, pay for it. So I'll take it. It works. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear how our listeners at home are spending the time and uh, whatever they've picked up. I know a lot of people are really into sourdough starters these days, and that, that's become a really big thing. Um, so if you have anything fun that you're doing to pass the time, email us at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Give us your food ideas. Give us your show ideas. We love getting those too. Brian, thanks so much for hopping on today's show. Austin, thanks for the barbecue tips and for all your help behind the glass. Metaphorically, you're uh, you're in your home office. There is no glass there. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Brian Feroldi, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool On. We playing out with Burke and Graffia? Up to you. We can. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical Large amount in my bank account It's parenthetical The money I'm made of is theoretical So in theory I've got it good My fat wallet is on a diet My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank I call him Piggy, brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy, cracked him open, what a pity, his inner life was pitiful. I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess, with financial challenges, checks and balances, when things get tough, do you do it for money, or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on Triple coupon, soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess 
With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? has a headache trying to get something for free none more wiser is the miser always lives in misery i own a bank i call him piggy brought home the bacon he got a little wiggy cracked him open what a pity his inner life was pitiful i need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? Do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love?